we all go into leadership with, with a toolbox of expertise, but for most of us, um, equity work and, um, and the challenges of a, a increasingly diverse student body in, in a pandemic, in, in, a, um, in a time of great racial unrest, in a toxic political climate, um, nobody, nobody has been prepared um, to lead in this context. Um, it's, it's a matter of um, taking the time, um, listening, and then having the courage to do what's right when the occasion calls you to make a decision. Hello, welcome to season two of Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Melissa Morris Olson. The challenges facing colleges and universities short-term and in the years to come are immense, and yet many institutions are adapting in surprising and inspiring ways. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with higher education thought leaders about the academic transformation that is underway. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, futurists, and others who are thinking about and experimenting with new approaches. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share with your colleagues and friends so they can join the conversation too. and welcome to this episode of Ingenious You, where we consider the most urgent and provocative topics that are reshaping higher education, and we speak with higher ed's most creative and visionary leaders. I'm joined for this episode by Dr. Donna M. Carroll, who is in her 27th year as president of Dominican University, a comprehensive Catholic university of 3,200 students located 10 miles west of Chicago. Dr. Carroll has presided over a period of tremendous and sustained growth at Dominican in size, quality, and complexity. During her tenure, the full-time faculty has doubled, new schools and programs have been established, the operating budget has increased fourfold, three campaigns have raised over 165 million in new assets, and the physical plant has expanded significantly, including three new buildings and the purchase of a second campus. She's been widely recognized for her leadership, including being named one of 20 Chicago women to watch by Crane's Chicago Business, one of the 100 women of influence by today's Chicago women, a Chicago Tribune remarkable woman, she was listed among the top 10 women in education by the Chicago Sun-Times and is the recipient of the CEO Leadership Award from the Council for Advancement and Supportive Education. And that is just to name a few of the many recognitions she's received. We will include a link to her full bio in the show notes so that you can become familiar with the full range of her background and accomplishments. But for now, President Carroll, I am so pleased to welcome you to the Ingenious You community. I am delighted to be here. 
We like to start our conversations by finding out something about the professional journey of our interviewees. So can you tell us when you were starting out in higher ed, did you ever imagine that this is where the story would end? And how did you get here? You know, my, my story actually begins in college. Um, I finished my senior year a semester early and I was looking for something to do. So I followed my director of student activities um, to her graduate program. And I took a few classes in counseling psychology and higher education for that spring semester. And that is, that's essentially how I started. And being a college president, uh, did that even, uh, <laughs> did that even cross your mind at that point? Um, not even remotely, uh -huh. but, but what did happen is um, I was able to, um, I shouldn't say I identified, but I was blessed to have been identified by a number of very important mentors in my life. Mm. So um, they were actually much, their aspirations for me were much clearer and more significant than I would say mine were at the time. And so it, it catapulted me um, into positions, actually catapulted me into my doctoral program and then into positions earlier than I might have otherwise um, done that. And you know, I hear that so often from women leaders that it oftentimes it's others who, who see something in us and they, they name it and help to pull it out of us. And it, it, it can be a very significant part of our story. Now you graduated from uh, Wellesley, is that right? Right. So mm -hmm. a women's college, you're uh, one of uh, more than a few uh, women's college graduates who wind up in the presidential, presidential seat, which is, which is interesting. Um, now in October of this year, you announced your decision to retire at the end of this academic year. And in your letter to the community, you write that for every president, there is a chapter. So how might one write the Donna Carroll chapter on leading Dominican University? Well, we might write the chapter by, um, by talking about my office. I, they must be moving chairs upstairs if, <laughs> if you're not hearing it. But, um, you know, I, I think they would start by saying it was quite long, you know, and, um, when I, when I work with uh, aspiring presidents, I often say there are sprinters and there are marathoners. Mm. Um, and it's, it's not that I intended to be a marathoner, but um, you know, I found the, the opportunity to work with one institution over a long trajectory um, was, was very significant. Um, people will say, I'm sure, that um, one of the most significant elements of my presidency happened early. You know, we went through um, a name and status change in, in the second year of my presidency. So I had a dramatic start to that, that chapter. Mm -hmm. um, and, and as the first lay president, as the first 
woman who was not a member of the religious order that founded the institution. Um, I was, was groundbreaking in, in many practical ways too. You know, I, I, I didn't live in the convent. <laughs> um, I had, I was, um, I was invited to come to Dominican to make the institution um, more external in its posture, you know, more strategic in its posture. And so um, there, there were many firsts for Dominican during the, the last 27 years. And, and, and um, most of them to my, my delight and pride um, moved us forward significantly. Well, and your tenure is unusually long, as you know. I think it's what four, five times. <laughs> it is average these days. So I'm curious, what what is it that held you so long? And then, how did you know that this was the time to go? You know, I'm often asked that question, not not surprisingly, and and I answer it in one word: um, fit. Mm. You know, I. I think that um, the president, the presidency isn't a job, it's, it's a lifestyle. And um, you live it 24 seven, it is, it is very satisfying, it's very challenging and it's sometimes um, exhausting. So the, the extent to which um, those things that are important to you in terms of mission and strategy align with um, the, the moment and the purpose of the institution, um, that, that really gives you a resilience and the resilience then gives you longevity. So, um, and I think the size of the institution too. When I, when I first came to Rosary College, we were, I remember it, I remember it like it was yesterday, 729 undergraduate students and 123 freshmen, my fall, first fall. And so there's, <laughs> there's an intimacy to that experience um, that, um, that connects you to, to the institution deeply. And then as you grow the institution, you're even more deeply connected you know i i always say dominican and i grew up together mm. and and that that created um really an enduring bond that um you know when those moments came when i had all, other opportunities i was always in the middle of a strategic plan or or a campaign or building a building or i mm was publicly engaged in an important initiative. And it, it, felt, um, it, it felt like I would be disruptive to the continuing success of the institution if I were to step out. And mm -hmm. so um, one year turned into another year, turned into 10, turned into 27. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and the tenure at one institution is also really remarkable, I, I think, because we both know, we, you know, many presidents uh, who have perhaps led two or three institutions right. over right. the course of your tenure. So, so how did you know this was the time to step, to step away? You know, I, I think 
I think the decision found me as much as I made it because um, there are moments when a president can step away and feel confident the, that the institution has the capacity to make a smooth and successful transition. And um, right now, Dominican is a top 10 regional institution. This is our first year reaching the top 10. We are financially stable. We have a, an outstanding um, senior leadership team. So there, there are there are a number of factors around stability and reputation and growth. Um, actually, we had our one of our largest freshman classes and we had our highest retention in 20 years. Mm. Believe it or not, all this in the middle of COVID. Mm. And, and so it, it gave me a moment to pause and say, um, I can do this and the institution can carry forward um, with grace and stability. Um, and then, you know, and then the, you know, there are personal factors too. Um, as, as you said initially, you know, I have led four strategic plans, three capital campaigns and the like. I was at a point in, in my career and, um, and really my, my personal life that I didn't feel I could make another five to seven year commitment to lead the institution through a campaign. And, and most of our, our small um, or smaller regional universities are always have to pivot to the next great fundraising effort. And so I felt the institution was ready for new leadership. Um, and this was a moment that I could make a transition with, with integrity and, um, and hope for the future of the institution. So, Well, and as, as I've heard others say, when, when it's time to go, you know, and it sounds like that was certainly, is certainly the case for you. You know, I, I have to, I have to say, Melissa, it, it was, it's probably not that clear for me. I mean, oh. it was a heart wrenching decision. Mm you know, and the thought of letting go. Um, but, but just like the position is really not about you, the leaving is not only about um, your, your choices. It's about what is in the best interests of the institution at that time. And I think, I, I, I think I've made the right decision and I'm confident in it. But but the process of letting go is uh, it's an emotional roller coaster. Mm. I I can only imagine. You know we've talked about all of the many achievements and congratulations on this past year. I mean that the the enrollment the the financial stability those are those are really uh, incredible achievements in the midst of everything that we're all dealing with in higher ed. I'm curious though, as you reflect over your tenure, if there's one thing in particular that you're most proud of or uh, that, that really resonates in terms of personal meaning for you. Mm. You know, I, there, are, there are a number that I could, um, could name, but I think the most, um, the most important one for me personally was 
um, the advocacy work was and is the advocacy work that I do on behalf of undocumented students and the strong public statement the university has made in that regard. Um, I do think Dominican has been a leader in, in the support of undocumented students and, and immigration reform and advocacy. And, and that has the impact, seeing the impact of that on individual students and knowing that we um, have had an opportunity and have had the courage to, to take it, to, um, to change the lives of really now a generation of students who, but for circumstance have the talent and the industry, but might not otherwise have had the opportunity to attend college. So in my heart, you know, aligned with the mission of the institution, you know, our strong commitment to social justice. I think that's the one that has been most personally transforming to me. Mm. Well, and you have also taken several significant steps to move Dominican forward in regard to diversity and inclusion more broadly. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about uh, some of the things that you've done, what you've learned in the process, uh, any guidance for other presidents? Well, I, I, I think the first thing I would say is anybody looking to step into a presidency um, should realize that this is a burning issue um, and can be, can be um, a signature issue for a president or it can be a uh, debilitating issue. And, and there are, you know, we, we can talk about <laughs> Um, examples of both. Um, Dominican has been a Hispanic serving institution since 2011. Um, and we're one of, you know, there are about 500 HSIs in the country. There are about 30 Catholic HSIs. And we have been, um, that has been the distinguishing element of our diversity for, for the last decade. So, um, so as the demographics of our student body changed, driven in part by our strong public advocacy for um, Latinx students in general and undocumented students, we've, we've developed more of a, what I would call critical consciousness about culture, race, um, and equity. And, um, and those issues have really um, reshaped um, how we approach our curriculum. They have surely um, been a driving force in how we reorganize student services. Um, and and they're now, they are now factors that anchor our strategic plans. So um, our commitment to inclusive excellence is, um, is substantial and um, and, and something that we've really been working um, consistently hard and responsibly. We just partnered with our village to do um, um, major shared um, uh, anti-racism agenda. And um, so that's exciting. You know, my, you know, my, my personal 
goal being to assure that our increasingly diverse student body feels welcome in a community that, that is still largely white and, um, and privileged. And so the, how, do, how does a university introduce its student to the community and how does the community understand and invest in, in the university students is an important exchange for me. So um, that, that's, an, that's an exciting new initiative. But my, advi my advice to, um, to future presidents or aspiring presidents is um, lean into it. Um, I, I think one of the challenges for, for many colleagues these days is, uh, and, and I don't mean to sound overly dramatic when I say this, but I think they're scared of their students. Mm because, because the, the change is so dramatic um, in some cases. And, and I think the answer there is to take a deep breath, be present, you know, show up, listen, you know, be, re be responsive. Um, don't, don't put the, the burden of um, diversifying programs on students' backs, recognize that it is, the learning curve is there for you <laughs> and you have to be part of that change. Um, and, all, and also recognize it's, it's, a, it's a very humbling leadership experience. Mm -hmm. you know, we all go into leadership with, with a toolbox of expertise, but for most of us, um, equity work and um, and the challenges of a, a increasingly diverse student body in in a pandemic in in a um, in a time of great racial unrest in a toxic political climate um, nobody nobody has been prepared um, to lead in this context um, it's it's a matter of um, taking the time, um, listening, and then having the courage to do what's right when the occasion calls you to make a decision. If we learned anything from the rapid deep dive into online learning that happened this spring at our college campuses around the world, it is this. High quality, effective remote learning requires a lot more than just the technology. If you want to create rich and robust remote learning experiences, it starts with understanding how people learn and how to design learning environments and how best to use technological innovation to bring about these kinds of experiences. Institutions of all types and sizes are now looking for digital learning professionals who know how to use learning and curricular design principles, technological tools and innovation, and analytics to create robust and rich learning experiences for their students. This is the future of learning, and the future is now. The Bay Path University newly launched Master of Science in Learning Design and Technology was created for just this purpose. The degree prepares professionals for what Inside Higher Ed recently called Higher Ed's hottest career field. 
In addition to learning about all of the breakthroughs in this new teaching and learning field, you will also gain hands-on experience designing innovative learning projects for real-time college classes and faculty. Upon graduation, you'll be highly marketable and ready to join this exciting new career field. The program is entirely online and can be completed in less than two years. For more information, visit the Baypath University website at baypath.edu LDT. Applications are now being accepted for the October start. If you want to design the future of learning, take the next step. Visit our website today, baypath.edu LDT. listening to you, it strikes me that, and I don't know if this is intentional or not, but you, your, your, your approach is very much like one who thinks of the organization as a learning organization. Mm-hmm. And it, it, you, it, your leading, your leadership style is, is one of being very learning, learner focused, which mm-hmm. I would imagine has also helped in many ways. You know, I I would agree. I would agree with that. I I don't know that I I necessarily described it that way. I I surely um, believe that um, you know leadership, particularly presidential leadership, is is not about you. You know, it's it's about the institution. It's about the community that you lead. It's about, you know, building a healthy learning environment and encouraging faculty, staff, and students to, to do, do their best work. Um, and, and so, it ta- you know, it takes a, it takes a certain um, disposition to, to do it well and fairly, um, over time, I, you know, when people ask me, I always say, you know, you have to be a grown up. You know, you really have to recognize that even though you, you have pushed through, through your career to get to this point where, where you sit in this seat, then you have, to rec- you have to put ego aside and realize that um, you serve the institution. You are its greatest steward. You are its storyteller. Um, you are its uh, protector, and it's you know the person encouraging. But um, but you can't lose sight of the fact that um, the institution is about more than you. And I, and I think that's um, you know, when you asked me early on, that's why I always say that each president has a chapter. You know, one, one of the things that is very interesting about presidential leadership is it, you know, you step into the institution for a period of time and you provide leadership direction, you, you, you love the people, you, you know, set the boundaries, you, you are the voice of the institution. And then you step out and the institution continues forward. So you steward a chapter. Um, and and as, I'm re- as I'm realizing myself now that I'm in my last four months, um, 
it doesn't really end and that's okay. You know, you, you, bring, you bring issues and projects and opportunities to a certain juncture of stability and then, then a next president, then you hand it off to a next president. Um, and, um, and, and that's, you know, that's how it should be, you know. Well, and that's a great pivot uh, back to, uh, I wanted to ask you about the mentoring that you've done. I know that you uh, have served in a formal capacity as a mentor to emerging leaders, emerging uh, presidents. Uh, and you've talked a lot about uh, how you might counsel um, emerging leaders, but one of the things I'm, I'm wondering about is how, how do you advise uh, potential presidents uh, as to how to discern whether that is the right pathway for them at a particular point in time? Well, let me see if I, I could remember this. I have a recipe for leadership. Let me, let me try, I use it with students. It's um, one part skills, two parts disposition. Um, what did I say? Add, add persistence. Um, I'm missing one. And then I say, um, sift out ego and sprinkle liberally with joy. I, I, you know, I'd have to find what I'm missing. I, you know, I think part of it has to do with, with what I said earlier. It is very important to shop the fit if you were looking to lead an institution. Because um, again, as I said earlier, it, it, it is an all in lifestyle. And so if you don't, if you don't find joy and satisfaction in, in the lifestyle and in the meaningful moments, you, you don't have the resilience to do the job over time. And, um, and I always encourage um, aspiring presidents to, to really think through what is important to you because when the going gets tough, <laughs> and, it, and it always does in a presidency, particularly in a, in a long one like I've had, you know, you, you ebb and flow with the institution. You want to be able to drill down and understand absolutely why you do what you do so that that, that carries you through those dark moments, you know, after, after you've collaborated with everybody and consulted, and then you're sitting alone with that very difficult decision, which you know will satisfy some and horrify others. <laughs> um, you, you have to know what your context is, um, what drives um, your decision and what is ultimately most meaningful for you. you know? Now that doesn't mean that you don't you don't also have to you know shop the institution you know and I, and I will always talk with um, aspiring presidents about you know what to look for in a budget how to how to assess the climate of the faculty you know what are the indicators that it's a functioning board 
that knows governance and and understands your role as administration. So you know there are there are concrete factors, but but ultimately, if you're if what is meaningful for you personally aligns with the mission of the institution, the likelihood that you will be able to lead with integrity over time is is greater. And and I I know that from my own experience. I know that from the research. Um, and I, and I believe that deeply. Um, and, I, and I guess the other thing I would say, and, and again, this is part of resilience, is you know, a, a president, and I'm gonna write an article on this at some point in the future, a president has a special relationship with hope and forgiveness. You, know, you, you must be someone that always sees the glass half full, you know, always sees the opportunity beyond the obstacle. And, and you, can't, you can't hold on to grudges. You know, there, there will be moments that are painful, but, but you are always 51% responsible for moving the institution forward. Mm. Um, and, and you need to be able to differentiate between what is coming at you that is painful because of the role you happen to be in or, or without personalizing it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that understanding of hope that pulls an institution forward in tough times and forgiveness that enables you to lead um, in tough times, um, it, it's, it's, it's a maturity of understanding. <laughs> Oh, I hope you will write an article about this. I think that's uh, that's a really compelling uh, guidance for current presidents and and wannabe presidents. And mm -hmm. it, it really speaks to what you were saying earlier about the need to be the adult, mm -hmm. uh, which that's maturity and all you know, that goes into that. And you know, I you know when people ask me all the time, you know, what what is what's the magic? of a successful presidency. And, and without sounding flip, I will often say, you know, a significant part of it is showing up every day, being fair, being balanced, um, you know, providing um, faculty, staff, and students with, with this constant center upon which they do, can depend so that they can go about the, you know, the core work of the institution, teaching and learning without being distressed by, by the administration of, of the university. So they can feel confidence in the institution. You, you may have heard this, I have a mantra, you know, and I, I share it often and I'm, I'm, I'm always flattered and I chuckle when I hear other people share it at the podium. They usually give me credit. But I call it the three C's, absorb chaos, respond calmly. And if you do that again and again, you build confidence within your organization. Mm. So absorb chaos, respond calmly, build confidence. Mm. And I think those three C's, um, you know, give the institution its stable anchor 
that enables it to get about its business, you know, respond in tough times like pandemics, um, and really have the courage to take risks because um, the institution feels um, feels that it is well that it is well anchored in in leadership, mission, and um, you know, and the like. So what's next for Donna Carroll? What's next for Donna Carroll? That, that is, um, that's a big question, you know, and, and, and I'm trying not to rush into an answer. Um, I have a sabbatical. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm taking the time to, um, to, um, to finish this position with integrity without looking over um, the shoulder of the next four months to, to what happens next. I've, you know, I've had, uh, I sit on a number of boards, which I will continue to serve on, on which I will continue to serve. Excuse me, I'm a former English major. Um, I, um, I have had a number of interesting invitations, you know, um, and um, I, I will likely do a corporate board if, you know, when that opportunity comes up. And as I said earlier, I'll, I'll, do, I'll do some writing, um, but I also want to take a little time and see what it feels like um, not to carry um, the burden uh, and the joy of an institution on your shoulders. I mean, I, you know, when I, when I first joined Rosary, I was one of the, the youngest presidents in the country. And now I retire as one of the longest serving presidents, surely in the state of Illinois, maybe nationally. Um, and so, you know, this has been a big chunk of my adult life. And so it will be interesting to see, um, to see how it feels. Um, to, to walk into the grocery store and be sort of a normal person and not the president who um, people approach with a question or a concern. Mm. You know, I, I, I actually, um, you know, am a little terrified of the transition because um, I love the job and the institution, but, um, but I also had, um, I had back to mentors. I had a mentor very early in my career when I was thinking about accepting the Rosary presidency, um, but but was anxious because I, you know, I was young. I was leaving New York, et cetera, et cetera. And he said to me, and it was a he. He said, "Do not not do it out of fear." Mm -hmm. And and I always remember that when I am deliberating on a, um, a big decision or preparing for the aftermath. Um, I am confident there will be, you know, some new challenges. Um, I, look for, I look forward to um, spending time with some of my friends, one of which is your former president. Yes, yes. And, and um, and I have a number of those friends who are who have done this before me, 
And so I'm getting lots of advice from them, you know, which goes in every assortment of direction, of course. Sure. <laughs> but but I, I can tell you, I'm, if you had asked me this question six, eight months ago, I might've broken into tears. Oh. <laughs> um, and, and now I'm, you know, now I'm, I'm more excited about the unknown than um, intimidated by it. Um, I'm looking, my first choice will be what, what I do immediately after, because I think it's important that a former president, quote unquote, get out of town <laughs> for a while when a new president steps in so that, um, you know, the new president has space and independence. Um, and then I, I will be at her service when it comes to transition and donors and the like, you know, so that again, I, I, and I assure a smooth transition. I mean, I, I am right now invested in um, doing everything I can to prepare the institution for a new president to leave open the decisions that are appropriate for a new president to make, but to but to finish things that um, that don't leave her, you know, racing around trying to understand a half-baked decision. So um, so right now I'm focused on this, and then of course, then of course I'm also focused on packing up an office after 27 years, and so every once in a while I. Um, I open a cabinet or look in a file or, you know, or throw something away. <laughs> For sure. Well, you know, I have no idea or I have no doubt there will be another very interesting and rich chapter in the life of Donna Carroll. And I'm I'm going to look forward to hearing um, uh, over time, you know, and reading that chapter, however it might however it might proceed. So thank you. Let me end with a signature question. And we ask this question of all of our guests and it has to do with the future of higher education. So I really want your opinion here. So in your opinion, what do you think needs to be on the radar of every college and university leader right now as we look to the future? Mm. Well, um... I think we have to be very, and this might be something nobody else has said. I think we have to be very conscious of language. Um, for instance, I, I hear many of my colleagues talking about um, how they can't wait to get back to normal. Mm. I think we should get rid of the term back <laughs> there is no going back. You know, I think higher ed needs to move forward. Um, having learned an enormous amount about technology and online teaching and learning and, and um, focus on what that new, new um, modality or modalities will look like academically. Um, I also think we have to um, expunge the term um, or the dichotomy haves and have nots. You know, I, I, you know, because we do a lot of equity work, um, 
I spend quite a bit of time challenging um, people in conversations when they talk about first generation to college students from a deficit perspective. Mm. I think, you know, those of us who work with first generation, uh, largely students of color, need to um, approach this work from uh, a point of strength. You know, we need to recognize our students as assets that enrich the learning environment and will enrich society. And, um, and we, we have to recognize um, you know, the opportunity and the privilege we have educating um, this demographic of students rather than wasting time um, yearning for the, the wealthy privileged um, student of the past. I mean, I think we have to fight against the dichotomies in higher education, but but I don't I don't um, think we should approach those dichotomies viewing one as as less than the other, but rather focus on the opportunity we have um, for educating what will be the majority of students in the future. So, um, and then I would say in a in a, in a larger sense, um, you know. Higher ed it will be in a in a transformative mode, and and I think people stepping into leadership um, are going to have to approach it with flexibility and resilience, um, and and a degree of um, risk, but also but calculated risk, um, and. And an understanding of um, data analytics is just essential now in, in a way that it wasn't when I was initially a president. I mean, I think, I think we know so much about our students, about learning, about um, you know, financial ratios and the like, not my favorite, but <laughs> that, um, it will be very important for leaders of the future to be analytically sophisticated, not as a substitute for, uh, for the interpersonal piece of leadership, which I always think uh, remains the most important. You know, the authenticity of the person, the ability to communicate, the ability to care for people. But, but I think you, you have to be strategically and analytically savvy um, looking forward um, in a way that perhaps was less, um, was less of a dramatic need um, in, in the past. Or maybe I just didn't notice it <laughs> in the way I notice it now. <laughs> well, no, and you, you so succinctly pulled those things together. Um, so, uh, President Carroll, I am so, uh, so grateful for your time, and I wish you and Dominican all good things in the months ahead, and we're going to look forward to hearing uh, from you in some other capacity. I have no doubt in the, the months, the years ahead, so thank you. No, so I look forward to, who knows, maybe Carol and I can co-teach something for you, Melissa. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great, or, or a book? How about it? Well, that's, 
that is surely a, a possibility. But I think first I'm going to write my mystery novel before I write a, you know, an academic tunes. <laughs> so, um, but thank you. It was this was fun to do. I'm I'm glad it worked out. Yeah. No. I'm. This has been great, and everything. Uh, it, it was just terrific, and all of your your responses. You know, it it your responses uh, reflect the the life you've lived. You know, it's it's it comes from deep within. I, it's lived experience. And yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, hopefully you can cut and paste in ways that takes out the flushing toilet and the, <laughs> the furniture being moved upstairs. I didn't. I, I didn't hear it. I couldn't pick up any of it. None of that was picked Jessica, up. So. Jessica was having a heart attack. She was <laughs> racing out of the room. <laughs> You know, speaking of mystery books, my my uh, someday I'm going to write a book. Who killed the provost? I've got the plot all worked out in my head. So <laughs> there we go. there we go. You know. Well, listen, well, Melissa. Anything else I can do to help? And good luck with it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Take care. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. Yeah, bye bye. I'm Melissa Morse Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson and Marcy Moore. Ingenious You is a production of CHELIP, the Center for Higher Ed Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash for information about our professional development opportunities for higher ed faculty and staff, including our blog and our Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Ed monthly webinar series. If you like what you hear on this podcast, be sure to review and rate it wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share Ingenious You with your friends and colleagues so that they too can join our community. In next week's episode, we speak with Dr. Paul LeBlanc, who is in his 18th year as president of Southern New Hampshire University. Under his leadership, SNHNU has grown from 2,800 students to over 135,000 learners, which makes it the largest nonprofit provider of online higher education in the country. While many people may know the story of SNHNU's growth, what is not as well known is the unlikely career trajectory of its president. Listen in to learn about the influences that shaped Paul LeBlanc's journey to lead the country's largest nonprofit online university, as well as his thoughts about what's next for higher ed. Be sure to subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts so that you do not miss out on this episode. That's all for now. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.